Well, good morning, Grumlaw family. We are so glad that all of you decided to tune in here today. We never, ever take that for granted, especially if this is your first time tuning in here to Grumlaw Online. Thank you for giving us a shot. Today, we are continuing in a series titled Thriving in Babylon. I mentioned this last week. If we were to have created a subtitle for this series, it would read A Guide for How Godly People Can Thrive in a Godless Culture. And no, we are not confused about where we live Uh, What we learned last week is that Babylon is actually a term used throughout Scripture and in other history books as well to describe the spirit of this world. It's referring to an evil spirit that has been influencing our world and culture throughout all of human history right up to present day. And, And what this means for the follower of Jesus is that you are never at home in this world. As we learned last week, like Daniel, you are in exile on this earth. You are in exile living in Babylon, simply passing through Babylon until you find yourself at your eternal home in heaven, united with God, your creator forever. But but during our time as exiles in Babylon, the book of Daniel provides us with a playbook as to how we not only survive in Babylon, but thrive. Not only how to endure, but influence. Because in a matter of just 70 years, and this is incredible, Daniel goes from a 13-year-old victim of human trafficking to becoming the second most powerful person in the most powerful nation on the entire planet. As culture was shifting underneath his feet and headed into clearly uncharted territory in a direction so clearly the opposite of what God had intended. Maybe sound a little familiar? Daniel didn't just survive, he thrived. He didn't just endure, he influenced. So so last week we spoke about Babylon's strategy to influence us. And it's important to keep in mind, this strategy has not changed in all of human history. And by the way, the reason that Daniel and his friends were able to withstand this indoctrination program was because they were aware of the strategy. So it's really important if you were not here last week, you go and you catch yourself up at grumlaw.com slash messages or you find us under Grumlaw Church wherever you grab your podcasts. And this week, as promised, is really part two of an hour-long sermon where we're going to be talking about today how the follower of Jesus influences Babylon. So, So again, last week was all about how Babylon tries to influence us. This week is about how the follower of Jesus influences Babylon. Now, Let me address something here right on the front end uh, that I think is really, really important for all of us to get our heads around before we dive into today's content. A a common sentiment that I hear from among Christians is is that all of the really important ministry and work of God happens within the walls of a church. That that you kind of have to put up with your job or whatever else you do during your workday, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a student, and, and when you show up to church on Sunday, that's where the kingdom of God has its influence. Y'all, that is just flat out wrong. Yes, we believe that what we're doing around here is is important. As we frequently mention, it's important to have community with other people who are growing in their relationship with Jesus. But but if we are going to see the kingdom of God grow in this godless culture that we find ourselves in, it's going to be because, frankly, all of you, not the tiny percentage of us who actually get a paycheck from the church, all of you start to leverage your entire life, and in particular, what you do from approximately nine to five each day for the kingdom of God. This message is all about how you, as a follower of Jesus, can leverage your life to have an influence on Babylon for Jesus. Because, just in case you missed part one or maybe you already forgot, Daniel didn't work for a church. (laughs) Daniel wasn't a pastor. Daniel lived and worked in Babylon just like you. Y'all, most of what God wants to do in this world, and I'm not just saying this to make a point or because it sounds right in this message, 
It's going to be done by people who live and work in Babylon. You, not me. You can actually use the entire Bible as a, as a template for this. If you've never picked it up and read it for yourself, you'd likely think that most of the amazing work of God documented in Scripture occurred in a church. Again, that's wrong. In the book of Acts, 39 of the 40 miracles happened outside the walls of a church. Abraham was a farmer. Luke was a doctor. Nehemiah was a commercial real estate developer. Peter was a fisherman. Paul was a tent maker. Esther was in civil government, as was Daniel. Rahab was a working girl. If you don't read the Bible, that joke will hit some point later in the future. God is as concerned, if not more, in displaying his power outside the church as he is inside. As a follower of Jesus in Babylon, God absolutely has some work for you to do and longs to use you wherever you find yourself right now in your present circumstances. Now, one of the things that made Daniel so wise, and again, it's really incredible for me to think that Daniel was a teenager when he put all of this together, is that he not only understood his relationship with God, but he also understood his relationship with the world in which he was sent. There are four postures that Christians can take in this world. The three wrong and, and one right, as we're going to see. And that one right way, we could call it the way of Daniel. We're going to rip through these here pretty quick. Number one is, is separation. Uh, extreme examples of this would be the Amish or the Mennonite communities. But, but we would also be naive to only recognize those extreme examples because functionally, th there are a lot of Christians that have zero meaningful relationships with people who don't also claim Christ. They're living in this like separatist lifestyle. Now, the best example that I could think of uh, in my own life are Christian universities. Uh, I attended a college called Indiana Wesleyan University. Go Wildcats. Uh, and one of the things that grabbed my attention almost immediately upon stepping onto that campus were the number of students who grew up in Christian homes. They went to Christian schools their entire lives, or they were homeschooled their whole lives. That Their entire social lives centered around the local church, Awana programs, and you go here on Tuesday night, you get this, this sports program on Thursday nights. And, and then they remained in that Christian bubble into college. Then they graduate and they continue on in with this cycle, only befriending people who go to their very conservative, inward-focused church. Y'all, I promise you that God isn't smiling down on that. In fact, dare I say it, it's not even biblical. The, the motto of this group of people is don't hang out with the sinner or you're going to catch the sin. Stay away from those horrible people who watch R-rated movies and let their kids watch <gasps> gasp SpongeBob SquarePants. The, the, this group has completely overlooked that Jesus' final words before he left this earth were go and make disciples of all the nations. J Jesus is telling us go out into the world and share the message of good news about Jesus with everyone, in particular, people who don't know about me. Not retreat into your Christian bubble and hide. The, the, the second posture that we see among Christians is assimilation. This is basically the complete opposite of what we just spoke about with separation. And, and we actually spent a good chunk of time on this last week, so I'm not going to park here for too long. Th these are the people referenced last week who claim God, but they are living Babylonian. You claim God, but you're living with your boyfriend. You're living with your girlfriend. You claim God, but your allegiance actually lies with your possessions, with your stuff. You, you are a slave to greed. You claim God, but you do nothing to serve the local church. Your life looks no different from the Babylonian. Literally, the only difference that you can practically point to is that occasionally, occasionally you show up to church on Sunday mornings. 
Number three is, is altercation, this third posture. Uh, and let me just tell you, this group of people has really <laughs> risen from the ashes over these last couple of years in our country. Uh, social media has really given them a platform. This group of people loves Facebook in particular. This is the group of people who sees the world as enemies to be defeated rather than neighbors to be loved. Can I, can I actually real quick just get something off my chest and speak for followers of Jesus who are actually trying to win people for Christ? For those of you that are in this, this posture, this altercation, please shut up and stop making us look bad. Stop reposting those stupid memes with religious undertones. They're not witty, they're lame, they're embarrassing. Stop popping off about whatever political issue has your blood boiling and, and cramming a Bible verse into it to somehow justify what you're saying. Y'all, nobody in the history of the world's mind has ever been changed by a social media post. All you are doing is creating more division. All you are doing is making the rest of us Christians look bad. Now, now this obviously, it gets me kind of fired up because if I'm being honest, there are way too many of these types of people even right here in this church community that I would like to admit. You, you have adopted this us versus them mindset and I am imploring you, I am imploring you to use this morning as a seminal moment in your walk with Christ and make a change. Now, now, now listen, I get it. It's easy to take the bait and see ourselves as the good guys and the world as the bad guys, but let us remind ourselves of what the gospel teaches us, of what Jesus teaches us. Jesus comes along and he levels the playing field and reminds us that we are all, every human being in the history of the world, we are all the bad guys. And in the history of the world, there's only been one good guy. He went by the name of Jesus. And he comes along and dies for the bad guys. Satan is the enemy, not other people. Lost people are his victims. All three of these options that we see here, separation, assimilation, altercation, uh, these are terrible options. And fortunately for us, there is option number four what we could call the, the way of Daniel. He, he teaches us something radically different. Daniel comes along and takes this posture of transformation. Now, now listen to this, and I think this is really interesting. Hopefully some of you do as well. This interesting detail. Uh, there's another book that we have in the Old Testament titled Jeremiah. It's a book of prophecy. Uh, God would often in Old Testament times speak through uh, prophets who are people who spoke on behalf of God. God would give them very direct messages that they would then go and deliver to people. And, and in the 29th chapter of Jeremiah, this was written from Jerusalem specifically to this first wave of exiles in Babylon of which Daniel and his friends were a part of. And what's so cool, and I, I recognize I'm kind of nerding out right now, but again, hopefully two or three of you find this interesting. What's so cool is that we know for certain that Daniel read this book of prophecy because he actually references it in the ninth chapter of Daniel, the book that documents his life. As we drove home last week, Daniel was overnight taken from a godly culture with godly systems and godly values, and he's thrust into this pagan nation of Babylon, that this godless nation with godless systems and godless values, and he had to be thinking, what in the world do I do now? And through the prophet Jeremiah, God tells Daniel how he is supposed to relate to this new world, Babylon, that he has been thrust into. And so this isn't just advice given from Jeremiah to Daniel, but to all of us as well, who we all again find ourselves in Babylon. This is what the Lord of heaven armies, the God of Israel says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. That's all of us. Build homes, <laughs> plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them, for your kids, so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, don't dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. In other words, he's saying, listen, like work hard. Make sure that the community that you live in is thriving. 
Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. In other words, God is imploring us, transform Babylon from the inside out by fully assimilating into the life of Babylon. Not, not their behaviors and beliefs, but assimilating into the life of the community that you find yourself a part of. That Daniel goes to the Babylonian school. He, he crushes it at his Babylonian job. He keeps getting promoted to the point where he has a real voice amongst the most powerful people in Babylon. So, so how do we do that? I believe Daniel goes about doing this primarily but by avoiding two influence killers. Influence killers that many Christians fall into and completely lose their opportunity to have an impact for the kingdom of God here on this earth. Influence killer number one, a lack of respect. Every single one of us, we know a person like this or two, or if you're thinking right now, I don't know any of these people. You might be this person. But people who see respect as a one-way street. It's an individual that demands the respect of others, but shows respect to no one. This person shares their mind. They speak their convictions. And they think the biggest problem among Christians is that they just won't take a stand. That They'll often say the cross is offensive. But the interesting thing with these people's lives is that they're constantly passed over for promotions. They bounce around jobs. They never develop meaningful relationships with their coworkers. And they think that they are being alienated for their beliefs. That's wrong. It's because respect is a one-way street in their direction. That they demand respect for their beliefs from everyone else around them, but they give respect to nobody else. I want to show you a picture here of two individuals. This guy here you see on your right is a guy by the name of Shane Windemeyer. Uh, he's a leader of a rather influential gay rights activist organization called Campus Pride. Uh, the guy you see here to his left is an individual by the name of Dan Cathy. You might recognize that name. He is the owner and founder of Chick-fil-A. Uh, back in 2012, and some of you might recall this story, it was discovered uh, that Chick-fil-A was donating rather large sums of money to organizations that supported a biblical definition of marriage and sexuality, uh, and many in the LGBTQ community took that as, hey, they're standing against and directly opposed uh, to what we're standing for. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Dan Cathy, he is a very, very outspoken follower of Jesus. Now, when the media got a hold of this, uh, he got absolutely skewered. People lost their minds, Campus Pride being one of those organizations, and in response to finding out this information, they staged a protest of Chick-fil-A. Now, Chick-fil-A supporters came out and protested the protest. Uh, they came out in droves. They stated their support. They organized what came to be referred to as Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day. Uh, it would actually end up being the single largest day of sales in Chick-fil-A history, but that's not the point of the story. Now, when all this was going down, Dan Cathy, Chick-fil-A as an organization, they never came out to oppose Campus Pride or, or even state their support of Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day. Instead, unbeknownst to anyone, without any fanfare whatsoever, completely anonymously, Dan Cathy reached out to Shane Windemeyer to just ask to learn from him. They began having regular conversations about each other's beliefs, so often so that they developed a real friendship with one another. Uh, in fact, this picture that you see right here is uh, at the Chick-fil-A Bowl, uh, where Dan Cathy actually invited Shane Windemeyer to be his guest of honor. Uh, in 2013, after this blossoming relationship here, after they had known each other for about a year, uh, Shane Windemeyer wrote an article for the Huffington Post titled, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. And, and in this article he wrote, I pulled some of these words. Again, these are Shane Windemeyer speaking. He says, it's not often that people with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk sitting down and listening to one another. We see this failure to listen and learn in our government, in our communities, and in our own families. 
Dan, Kathy, and I would together try to do better than each of us had experienced before. Never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for Campus Pride to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. Throughout the conversations, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more than a Christian. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. See, see Dan Cathy could have very well came out and, and made a bold stance, made, made strong points on behalf of Chick-fil-A and himself, but, but, but he instead chose to use respect to make a difference. Church, as exiles living in Babylon, we have to constantly grapple with this question. Am I going to make a point or am I going to make a difference? Daniel, throughout this entire text, he chooses respect to a remarkable degree. And therefore, all over in Babylon, he's making a difference. He doesn't endure, he influences we explored one of those examples last week when he, he very respectfully goes to his superior and he asks for permission not to eat forbidden foods according to the Jewish law. All, all throughout Daniel, other examples we have of this is of just how he simply addresses the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. In the second chapter, he says, Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. I want you to keep in mind that Daniel right here is addressing the very individual that is responsible for removing him from his home, marching him 700 miles away from all that was familiar through a desert, that the guy that was almost immediately upon arriving in Babylon, it forces him to have gender reassignment surgery. This is how he is speaking to him. No matter how bad you maybe feel like it's gotten in your workplace, I dare say Daniel has you beat. Our influence with people will never be greater than our respect for people. Too many followers of Jesus, they, they treat respect as a one-way street, and, and then you claim you're getting persecuted. I'm being persecuted for my beliefs. Nope, you're being persecuted because you're a jerk. Our, our influence with people will never be greater than our respect for people. And, and then influence killer number two uh, is a lack of wisdom. I promise you, if you read Daniel with this lens, you'll see it popping up all over the place. Daniel constantly, and this is so wise, he differentiates between sinful things and offensive things. He never compromises his beliefs, but he also recognizes that not every hill is worth dying on. For instance, and we discussed this at length last week, Daniel, upon arriving in Babylon, he was given a new Babylonian name, which we know for certain that he hated because never one time throughout the entire text of Daniel does he refer to himself as his Babylonian name. And in fact, intentionally, he misspells it all over the place. But he also doesn't make it a point to correct people who call him by this Babylonian name because it wasn't sinful that there was nothing within the Torah, the Jewish law, that said, hey, you can't be called by a Babylonian name. So he put up with it even though it offended him. There are a lot of Christians who confuse what they don't like, what offends them, with what God explicitly forbids. All throughout Daniel, Daniel's obviously surrounded by Babylonian behavior. And Daniel just understood that godless people live godless lives. 
He, he did not try to impose his walk with God on people who don't know God. Y'all, this is another one of those things that, that really drives me nuts among Christian circles. When Christians attempt to impose Christian rules on people who are not Jesus followers, you've you got to stop doing that because this Bible verse says so. And they're looking back at you going, I don't give a rip what the Bible says. If you as a follower of Christ had somebody come up to you and says, hey, you've you got to stop doing this because the Quran says so, you'd look at them and go, I don't really give a rip what the Quran says because I'm not Muslim. It is no different for someone who does not follow Jesus. So, we would all, follower of Jesus, no matter where you're at in this whole walk, we would all do wise to heed this advice and avoid these two influence killers. You'll be a step ahead of most. But in influencing Babylon for Christ isn't simply about avoidance techniques. Through the life of Daniel, followers of Jesus are given a very, very clear imperative. In order to make a difference, you must be different. In order to make a difference, you have to be different. The goal is already noted. It isn't assimilation, it's transformation. Transformation does not occur by blending in with Babylon or sitting idly by waiting for the second coming of Christ. It means marching to the beat of a different drum. Listen, again, this doesn't mean being weird. Again, we don't need any more weird Christians. We already have plenty of those. I promise you we don't need any more. I'll admit to you that I have never been a huge fan of, of marching bands. Usually at that point of the game, at halftime, I'll just kind of like wander out into the kitchen and do something else until the game resumes. But I will admit uh, that as technology has improved, and in particular, really, really quality drone footage, when they kind of zoom out and they give you that shot of the marching band, like all marching in perfect unison, they're all like, you know, hundreds of instruments being brought together to form this really beautiful music. Like, it's impressive, right? And it happens because everyone is keeping their eyes focused on one person. They're keeping their eyes focused on the conductor. But, but let's just say you're watching one of these college football games, halftime rolls around, the marching band comes out, and there's exactly one guy, and he has AirPods in, and he's jamming out to Drake. If you saw him from a distance, he would look chaotic. He would look out of beat. But, but in reality, he's just marching to the beat of a different drum. And if you had Drake in your ears as well, you would see that, no, he's actually following the music quite well. As a follower of Jesus, we don't live our lives in accordance to the spirit of Babylon, but instead the spirit of truth. God himself, his word, this gift that is the Bible. And yes, if we're getting this right, it's going to look different from the world around us. We're going to look a little bit chaotic and like we're out of tune from the rest of the world. St. Augustine said that followers of Jesus are most distinguishable from the world in their attitude towards these three things, sex, power, and money. Sex, rather than viewing it as a commodity and something to be used to satisfy fleshly desires, followers of Jesus are marked by their control over the flesh because God, the Holy Spirit, dwells within them. Now, it's worth noting, and I think we often lose sight of this, God is the inventor of sex. So I assure you, he is not against it, but, but he created it to be enjoyed within a healthy, God-designed marriage. But then there's power. Our world tells us to leverage more power for yourself. And, and as you find yourself with the power, leverage it for personal gain. <laughs> Jesus comes along and he flips this upside down. He teaches and more importantly, models something entirely different. As a follower of Jesus, you are to leverage your authority for the benefit of those under your authority. Power in the kingdom of God means constantly asking, what is best for the me beside me? 
Jesus obviously provides us with the ultimate example of this. If there was ever anyone in the history of the world who had every right to come down to this earth and say, all of you serve me, it was God in the flesh, Jesus himself. But, but instead, he comes along and does the most selfless thing imaginable. He, he lays down his life for you, subjecting himself to a sinner's death on a cross for your benefit, for my benefit. And, and then there's, there's money. But Babylon tells us that money is the key to the good life. But again, Jesus comes along and he flips this upside down. He says, no, money is a tool. It's an instrument entrusted to followers of Jesus for the advancement of God's kingdom. I want you to ask yourself, is, is money for you primarily something that you acquire and enjoy and maybe give a little bit away on the side? Y'all, the, the spirit of Babylon even tells us to do that. Even people who don't claim Jesus give a little bit away. Or is it a tool to bless, empower, and prosper the kingdom of God of which you enjoy a little bit on the side? Which one of these is true of you? And as a follower of Jesus, I'm asking you right now, really ask yourself these questions. Do you give sufficiently and live extravagantly? Or do you live sufficiently and give extravagantly? This is the way of the follower of Christ. There, there seems to be this growing sentiment among people of my generation and down uh, that the ability to accumulate wealth is somehow synonymous with Babylon, the spirit of this world. I, I would say that's simply not true. Regardless if God has given you a lot or a little, it's all about how we manage it. Do you own it or does it own you? God absolutely gives people and many people right here in this faith community the ability to accumulate wealth in order to advance the kingdom of God on this earth. It, it was about a month ago uh, that I shared with this church uh, that we had taken a step of faith here as we walked into 2022 or taking a look at our budget uh, and we made the, the decision and admittedly it felt pretty risky that we were going to sponsor a second border station between Nepal and India uh, in partnership with Our Daughters International that the sole purpose of these border stations is to rescue women from human trafficking and uh, as myself and the elders sat in a room and were you know kind of painstakingly going through the budget we just kind of came to this place where we're like yeah we can't really afford a second border station but I, I don't think we're going to look back at the end of this year and go, you know, we regret saving women from human trafficking because every single uh, day, because of your generosity and our sponsorship of these border stations, we're rescuing anywhere between four and 12 women every single day from the terror uh, of human trafficking. Now, now, what's really crazy about this is I announced that on a Sunday. Uh, immediately after church that day, there was a couple that reached out to me uh, and said, hey, we'd like to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, can, can we have dinner with you this week? And so just 48 hours later, it's a Tuesday evening, uh, my wife and I are having dinner with this couple. Uh, we make small talk for a good chunk of the meal. And then at the end, they said, hey, we want to talk a little bit more about this, uh, this border station. What does it cost? And just in case you're curious, these two border stations together cost us somewhere in the neighborhood of about $50,000 annually. Again, I would say a small price to pay to rescue that many young women. And uh, I'm sharing this information. And uh, after sharing a little bit, uh, the gentleman looks at me and he slides an envelope across the table. And he said, hey, uh, my wife and I, we, we want to pay for this border station this year. And with tears in his eyes, he said, we are so thankful for, for how this church is leading the charge in generosity. Please keep being obedient to where God is leading you to be generous with this church's finances, and, and we'll do our part and be generous as well. That church is being different. That, that is influencing Babylon for the kingdom of God. And in order to make a difference, you must be different. Again, this isn't an invitation to be a weird Christian. No, it's a calling 
to step into the life that God has designed for every follower of Jesus, including you. And and church, let's not forget the example of Jesus himself. His very, very different, flip the world upside down way of living. He came to this world and he said, let the children come to me. He gave dignity and rights to women at a point in history when most of the time women were not viewed as anything more than a choice piece of livestock. He spent time with notorious sinners, even entering into their homes, coming on their level. He respected everyone. In fact, the only people that he didn't show a ton of respect to were religious people who took that approach of us versus the world. And then, of course, he died for sinners. He died for you and I. Let's not forget this different way of living. It didn't push people away. It drew them in. And it's that different way that is still drawing people to Jesus today. God absolutely wants to leverage your life for his kingdom. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that calling has already been placed on you. And in order for that to occur, you need to start marching to the beat of a different drum. You are called to live differently, not blend in with Babylon. You are called to live like Jesus.